when I lived in Indiana, we, we would get lots of snow in the winters. And, and as a small boy, uh, the challenge with a lot of snow is getting, well, anywhere, <laughs> really. Uh, right when the, when the snow comes nearly to your waist, it's, it's kind of a trudge to go any place at all. And the trick, the trick was to find where someone else had walked already. Someone, someone bigger could more easily crunch through the snow and forge a path. Right? If, if, as a small kid, if I ordered my steps according to the path left by their steps, well, then I could make my way forward. Now, in Galatia, the, the church community was divided because they had believed some false teachers who, who insisted that keeping the law, even if the things that they were insisting upon were Jewish ceremonial laws, the, keeping the law was the path of the Christian life, the prerequisite for justification. Their fellowship had then fractured because they did not understand the nature of faith alone as the instrument of salvation. And so Paul reminded them at length about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And in chapter 5, where we find ourselves today, he, he begins to apply that gospel truth to the Christian life. Well, don't impose laws on yourself as, as conditions of salvations because you can't keep any of them adequately to earn God's favor. He, he gives you that, God gives you that by grace alone. But, but then our question is, well, what does that freedom look like? And we have to remember here, that as we, as we've tried to signpost throughout from the beginning of studying this letter, remember that Paul's practical goal in explaining, one, the nature of his apostleship, and then two, extensively the, the nature of this doctrine of justification by faith alone, his practical goal was to, to bring Christians back together. They'd quit eating at the same table because of these imposed conditions. But the the community should not be divided by who keeps what law since God accepts us all by faith alone. How then, if, if we're meant to be together, if they were meant to be together, how do they practice that? How do we practice that? Verse 13 For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But here's how you use your freedom. Through love, serve one another. And so then we find ourselves in a more principled explanation of of that. In Galatians 5, 16 to 26, Paul outlined the principle of the Christian life of freedom as we use it to serve one another in love. His point was, like me as a small boy looking to get through the snow, to make your way through the field of snow in the Christian life, you need to follow 
ordered steps, namely by walking after the path forged before you by the Holy Spirit. Now soon, as we come into the next chapter, Paul will angle this principle into his own more concrete applications. But here he's establishing a basis of living in the Spirit. And so our reflections today center on our walk in this life as we pursue, best we can, faithfulness to the Lord. What does it look like to live as people who are justified? What does it look like to be part of the family of God? Our passage today sheds light on how we can answer those questions. And so our main point is that we should order our steps by the Spirit to keep our community together. We should order our steps by the Spirit to keep our community together. And we're going to think about this in three points. Spiritual life, spiritual guidance, and spiritual means. Spiritual life, guidance, and means. Let's think first then about spiritual life. I wonder if you ever think about why you eat, sleep, and breathe. Maybe that question sounds weird, but it raises a particular point. We, We take for granted things that happen naturally. We, we breathe without even thinking about it. Our, our bodies demand that we sleep, eventually forcing sleep upon us if we do not doze off voluntarily. And although we often become conscious of, of when we need to eat, we, we sort of take it as a given that we need food in general. Now, these things, all three of them, are simply Signs of life, right? Making them necessary part of our existence. We, we do these things because it's part of living. And like there are signs of life for our bodies, there are signs of life for our souls as well. It isn't the most known portion of this passage that we've read together, uh, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now we hardly ever make a big deal out of it. I think if that when, when a, a tree sprouts fruit, and if we're glad to see it, it's not a thing that we make an issue, a fuss over the fact of trees growing fruit. That's just what fruit trees do. It's what they should do. And so on the other hand, when a tree fails to grow fruit, that represents a, a problem. Something's wrong with a tree that starts failing to produce fruit. It's sick. It's warped. It needs healing. And so there's a, a reason that Paul called these virtues, the fruit of the Spirit. Living, healthy trees sprout fruit. 
Living, healthy people eat, sleep, and breathe. Christians have signs of spiritual life too. People who are spiritually living and healthy, well, they sprout fruit. And Paul tells us what kinds. But let's think a a little bit more about those signs of life, eating, breathing, sleeping, and and growing fruit. And let's ask ourselves kind of a more basic question, a a very simple question, though. Do, Do people eat, breathe, and sleep to obtain life, to become alive? No. We do these things because we are alive, already alive. They are signs of life, not conditions for becoming alive. Do trees have to sprout fruit in order to come to life? Well, no, fruit is the outpouring of surplus life, right? An abundance of nutrients overflowing into these marks, indicators of life. And so we need to understand the fruit of the Spirit, in the same way. These are signs of life. This list of the fruit of the Spirit, this is signs of life manifesting a life that is already there. And so these Christian virtues do not obtain spiritual life for believers. Rather, they manifest spiritual life that is there. As Paul had asked Rhetorically, back in Galatians 3, verses 2 and 3, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? And then here lands our point. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You begin in the Spirit. He gives you life. And then we have signs of it. And Paul called the Galatians... To remember this relationship of, of works and life. He called them to know that they can't earn justification and life by what they do. And that means ceremonial practices in particular should not divide the people of God. But even still, as we find our freedom from having conditions to obtain life, we don't set aside the pursuit of godliness, trying to keep the moral law, namely because that pursuit is a sign of spiritual life. And that brings us to our second point, spiritual guidance. We we want to know, what's the route to, to pursue these things? I wonder, though, if you've ever been lost it's it's disorienting not to know where you're going or or how to get where where you need to be so when when my mom first moved into the the house where she lives now uh, i decided to go for a, a run around the neighborhood now the the road essentially is just a, a big circle so, you know it, it loops around and it come the exit is the same um, intersection as the the entrance uh, and so I set out on this this run, intending that I'll I'll just go around 
the whole loop. I, I'd never gone around the whole circle before, though, not even in a, a car or anything like that. So I didn't really know where I was going. And as I ran this loop, I, I eventually started to run out of energy and eventually starting to worry that the end of the loop was really too far away. Right, And so after a while of worrying that this loop would turn out to be too long, I, I turned back and just went the way I had come. Now, it was even harder going back at this point because I'd exhausted myself going this first direction already. The, the troubling bit was that later I discovered that I was, I was nearly to the end of the loop when I turned back. And, and if I just pushed ahead a, a few more meters, really, I would have come back around to the, to the road and, and known where I was. If I'd known where I was going, I would have kept pressing ahead and I would have then completed the journey. In Exodus 14, verses 10 and 11, Moses recounted how even though God had brought Israel out of Egypt, they panicked at the sight of trouble and wished that they could turn back. And so Moses wrote, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? They wished they could just turn back and go the other way where they'd come from. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't trust where they were going. We already read in Numbers 9, though, when later in this story, the Holy Spirit dwelled among the people as a cloud by day and a fire by night. The the cloud directed the camp. The Spirit directed the people's movements as they followed behind Him. And so as when the people look to their own devices, they want to turn back. But when the people look to the Lord for guidance... They know where they're going. It's hard to press ahead when you know where you're going. Even if you thought the way was obvious. Like a young kid walking in the tall snow, it's it's hard to make progress unless you walk behind someone else who has cleared the way for you. And all of this biblical theology of the Old Testament, these illustrations... Well, they pave the way for us to understand what Paul meant in a more precise, in a more personal way when he wrote, walk in the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. He's meaning to draw, he means to draw on this Old Testament imagery to show how we need direction to shape the use of our freedom properly. We need spiritual guidance. To avoid getting lost. Our flesh desires to go the wrong way. Paul, Paul tells us here 
that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're at war with one another and yet our flesh, even still, the lingering old man within us, our flesh desires to go the wrong way, to turn aside from the path set by God, like a map drawn by a child who's never left home pretending they know the way to a treasure that doesn't exist. If we try to forge the path on our own, we get lost. We turn aside. But the Spirit is against the flesh, and He indwells us to help us overcome those fleshly impulses with spiritual guidance. Now that then brings us to our third and final point. Spiritual means. Spiritual means. Because there's still a question. We Now we, we know we, we need to find our direction from the Lord, but then where do we find the Spirit's map? Where do we get it? This is, there's nice rhetoric to walk in the Spirit. But how do I do it? Where is the path through the snow in this sense? Biblical commentators like to make a lot out of lists of things in Paul's letters. They, they, they love it for, for some odd reason. They like to do detailed word studies on every item that he names. Now, as interesting as that may be, that's not what we're going to do here. Because it seems to miss the obvious point that Paul's twin lists here are meant to form a very obvious and, and a very simple contrast between life in the flesh and life after the Spirit. In God's Word here, we find our first pointers for how to follow the Spirit. Don't go this way. Don't take these turns. These things mark the path away from God's kingdom. But here are the signposts to follow for what virtues you ought to cultivate in your heart as a believer. I always find it striking. I, re- I really do find it um, a shocking thing at times how, how Paul's lists of sins typically highlight together some things that we would tend not to associate with one another, at least at the same level. If someone asked you to make a list of sins, whichever way you went with it, you would probably not stick sorcery, so genuine witchcraft, basically next to something like being jealous. We we wouldn't put kind of getting angry or feeling a little bit disagreeable or feeling envious of someone else on the same level, in the same list even, as idolatry and orgies. These typically seem to us to belong to different levels of sin, I think. And yet Paul thought that all the flesh's works are of the same order together. A holistic order of working in the world whereby we are enslaved to the flesh rather than ordered after the steps of the Spirit. Now notice 
An interesting difference between these lists, though, if you take a, a look there. So at, at, verse, at verse 19 uh, and compared to verse 22, on the one hand, the works of the flesh are plural. Meaning these misdeeds listed here are considered individually. Now, on the other hand, there are not fruits, plural, of the Spirit, but one singular fruit of the Spirit. Greek has a plural version of fruits. We see it in 1 Corinthians 15. It's there. Paul could have used it if he wanted. The list isn't a a catalog of individual things that you can divide up. This list is is more like a a catalog of, of a diamond's facets where the same sun shines onto one diamond, but the angle you see the stone simply highlights some facets more than others. If I turn the stone this way, the light marks this facet or this one, depending on where the light is shining. And so when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, it's not as though we can choose some items on this list and do those, as if we can divide the the fruit of the Spirit apart. No, all Christians, all Christians will have the one fruit of the Spirit, including aspects. Now, the thing is, light may shine uh, more brightly through some of these facets at, uh, in different people at different times in their lives. That's true enough. And yet we can't discard any of them. And yet don't be discouraged if you don't see all of these things manifesting in your life at once. That's not how the Christian life works either. Nonetheless, the Spirit's fruit, the Spirit's fruit in this respect is not the same as as we tend to talk about spiritual gifts, where we're gifted very differently among the church. And that doesn't change much. We have set gifts as individuals. In this case, with these Christian virtues, we don't, ah, oh, well, I'm just, I'm kind, but I'm not very patient. And that's, that's the fruit that I've been given. No, we pursue each facet of the fruit of the Spirit. And yet there's still that question of how. How do we do this? How do we find the trail through the snow behind the Spirit? How do we order our steps to follow Him? Verses 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Keep in step with the Spirit. The way that they've translated this, I I think that it might make us think about trying to keep up. You've got to keep in step, as in keep pace with the Spirit. As if our responsibility is, is to run as hard and as fast as we can to stay close to the Spirit. That's, I think, the way this might come across. But this, this, this verb here, however relates back to a word we saw and spent a whole sermon on in chapter 4 that was there translated as elementary principles. 
So this word is associated with things being in a row, things having a good order amongst themselves. So keeping in step is is not about pace, how quickly you can go and how hard you might run uh, along the path, but about the shape of the path itself, the root, the form of it. We order our steps with the Spirit, following the path that He has set out. And how do we do that? Well, the first answer, the first answer that everyone has to reckon with is that to to follow the Spirit, first of all, you must be in Christ. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You can't do these things if you're not a Christian. You must be a Christian to follow the Spirit and to order your steps after Him. And so we come to the point where we ask ourselves, have I placed my trust in Jesus Resting in him to forgive my sin. If not, well now is the time to seek him for that. Now is the time to run to the cross. That we might have our sins removed from us entirely. Now is the time to to go away from sin and to the Lord Jesus that we might find grace. But then, however, then the Spirit actually does clearly mark his path for us to follow. Now we think of this in extraordinary terms, I think, usually. We wish that there was the cloud or the pillar of fire sort of walking before us, that we could just look at that and go behind it. But today, the Spirit yet still clearly marks his path, and yet he does it in the ordinary means of grace. Because we need to know through the snow, the Spirit inspired the Bible so that we would know his path and how to follow him. Because we need to get on that path, he gave us baptism to mark, to signal the start of our root of discipleship, beginning in that cleansing that we receive from the Lord Jesus. Because because we need food to give us energy to keep walking along this path, the Spirit gives us the Lord's Supper to feed us. And because we need help going, because we need encouragement, because we do need guidance and to be pulled along, The Spirit gives us prayer. And so the ordinary means of grace mark the path of following the Spirit. Very clearly, even if not loudly. My fear is that we roll our eyes here. (laughs) There goes Harrison again, talking about the ordinary means of grace. Rambling on about the same thing. 
And yet, I hope we don't miss something that is extraordinary. Right? That God's own majesty, His power, His glory shines all the more majestically when He provides for His people through things that are readily available. When something very simple becomes something very powerful, that's because of God and what He does and His amazing work. It should astonish you that Christ is available and the path of living for Him is marked with the simple explanation of a book. Right? That's not an extraordinary thing. To take pages and unpack the meaning of words. It should take us aback that God would literally hand you nourishing grace in a small piece of bread and a sip of wine. Right? All, all the more church unity happens by these means. And we have to remember that that is in the purview of this letter throughout. Right? How, do, how does this, well, you're baptized with one baptism to trust in the same Lord Jesus. We realize our weakness as we all think, I need to be caught, I need to be fed, and I need to share the same meal with the people next to me. It is, it is very hard to be divided amongst ourselves when, when you commit to praying for someone, and when you hear them praying for you, in God's grace, the tensions just sort of dissolve. Maybe not instantly. But if you feel at odds with somebody, make a commitment to pray for them. It'll change. Through the means of grace, God accomplishes not only these things for affecting our salvation, our sanctification, but even bringing his church together. And so all this grace channels to cement Christ's church together more firmly as, as the temple, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we might walk after him. Christ is magnified in his church as we learn to love one another more deeply. Your love for another Christian shows Christ's own goodness. As we know that he has accepted us by grace alone and, and walks with us by the Spirit through this wilderness until we reach home. And we will reach home. There is an end of this age. As Paul has signaled from the very first words of this letter, it will come to an end. And we will see our Savior face to face. Every trace of our sin, its penalty and its power will be wiped away in full. And the thing is, we will rejoice at the sight of the Lord Jesus. And we'll do so together. Let's pray. Father God, we do know that walking by the Spirit here, ordering our steps after the Spirit 
is one is a message designed to bring the church together to lead us in unity to lead us in serving one another in love as the very first injunction of this passage comes to us and so we pray Lord that you would help us to have this faith working itself out in love that people would know our love for one another that we would indeed serve one another in love that that we would not become conceited we would not grow to provoke one another or envy one another but that we would live by the spirit ordering our steps after him let us walk by him as he has forged the way before us. 